Chapter 7 of Narrative of My Captivity Among the Sioux Indians by Fanny Kelly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Powder River. Another attempt to escape. Detection and despair. A quarrel. My life saved by Jumping Bear. The name given to Powder River by the Indians is Chahali Wakapola. It crosses the country east of the Bighorn Mountains, and from its banks can be seen the snow-capped cloud peak rising grandly from its surrounding hills. Between these ranges that culminate in the queenly shining crowned height that takes its name from the clouds it seems to pierce, are fertile valleys in which game abounds, and delicious wild fruits in great variety, some of which cannot be surpassed by cultivated orchard products in the richness and flavor they possess, although they ripen in the neighborhood of everlasting snow. In these valleys the country seems to roll in gentle slopes, presenting to the eye many elements of loveliness and future value. Powder River, which is a muddy stream, comes from the southern side of the Bighorn Mountains, and takes a southern course, and therefore is not a part of the bright channel that combines to feed the Missouri River from the Bighorn Range. This range of the Rocky Mountains possesses two distinct marked features. First, there is a central or backbone range, which culminates in perpetual snow, where Cloud Peak grandly rises as the chief of all its proud summits. Falling off gradually toward the southern valley, there are similar ranges of the Wind River Mountains beyond. Between these ranges, and varying in breadth from twelve to twenty-five miles, are fine hunting grounds, abounding in noble orchards of wild fruit of various kinds, and grapes as well as game of the choicest kind for the huntsmen. Notwithstanding its vicinity to snow, there are gentle slopes which present features of peculiar loveliness. Several miles northwest, and following the sweep of the higher northern range, and six to eight miles outside of its general base, a new country opens. Sagebrush and cactus, for which nearly two hundred miles have so largely monopolized the soil, rapidly disappear. The change, though sudden, is very beautiful. One narrow divide only is crossed, and the transition about one day's ride from the above-named river. The limpid, transparent, and noisy waters of Deer Fork are reached, and the horses have difficulty in breasting the swift current. The river is so clear that every pebble and fish is seen distinctly on the bottom, and the water so cool that ice in midsummer is no object of desire. The scenes of natural beauty, and the charms that have endured this country to the savage, will in the future lure the emigrant seeking a home in this new and undeveloped land. This clear creek is a genuine outflow from the Bighorn Mountains, and is a type of many others, no less pure and valuable, derived from melting snow and from the innumerable springs in the mountains. Rock Creek comes next, with far less pretensions, but is similar in character. A day's ride to the northward brings the traveller to Crazy Woman's Fork. This ever-flowing stream receives its yellow hue from the Powder River waters, of which it is a branch. The country is scarred by countless trails of buffalo, so that what is often called the Indian Trail is merely the hoof-print of these animals. Leaving Powder River, we passed through large pine forests, and through valleys rich with beautiful grasses, 
with limpid springs and seemingly eternal verdure. I continued to drop papers by the way, hoping they might lead to my discovery, which would have proved fatal had any one attempted a rescue, as the Indians prefer to kill their captives rather than be forced to give them up. It was the fifth night of my sojourn with the Indians that I found myself under the sweeping willows of Clear Creek. The men, weary with travel and glad to find so good a camping ground, lay down to sleep, leaving a sufficient guard over their captive and at the outposts. Their journey hither had been a perilous one to me, unused as I was to the rocky paths between narrow gorges and over masses of broken stone, which their Indian ponies climbed with readiness and ease. I was led to remark the difference between these ponies and American horses, who could only struggle to find their foothold over such craggy ground, while the ponies led the way, picking their steps up almost perpendicular steeps with burdens on their backs. Their travel after the rest at Clear Creek partook of the difficult nature of the mountain passes, and was wearisome in the extreme, and the duties imposed upon me made life almost too burdensome to be borne. I was always glad of a respite at the camping ground. On the sixth night I lay on a rock, under the shade of some bushes, meditating on the possibility of escape. The way was far beyond my reckoning, and the woods where they now were might be infested with wild beasts, but the prospect of getting away and being free from the savages closed my eyes to the terrors of starvation and ravenous animals. Softly I rose and attempted to steal towards some growing timber but the watchful chief did not risk his prey so carelessly, his keen eye was on me, and his iron hand grasped my wrist and drew me back. Throwing me fiercely on the ground, he hissed a threat through his clenched teeth, which I momentarily expected him to put into execution as I lay trembling at his feet. I felt from this time that my captivity was for life, and a dull despair took possession of me. Sleep, that balm for happier souls, brought only horrid dreams, in which a dreadful future pictured itself, and then the voices of my husband and child seemed calling me to their side, alas, in vain, for when I woke it was to find myself in the grass of the savage camping-ground, watched over by the relentless guard, and shut out from hope of home or civilized life. My feet were covered with a pair of good shoes, and my chief's brother-in-law gave me a pair of stockings from his stores, which I gladly accepted, never for a moment suspecting that, in doing thus, I was outraging a custom of the people among whom I was. The chief saw the gift and made no remark at the time, but soon after he shot one of his brother-in-law's horses, which he objected to in a decided manner, and a quarrel ensued. Realizing that I was the cause of the disagreement, I tremblingly watched the contest, unable to conciliate either combatant, and dreading the wrath of both. The chief would brook no interference, nor would he offer any reparation for the wrong he had inflicted. His brother-in-law, enraged at his arrogance, drew his bow and aimed his arrow at my heart, determined to have satisfaction for the loss of his horse. I could only cry to God for mercy, and prepare to meet the death which had long hung over my head, when a young Blackfoot, whose name was Jumping Bear, saved me from the approaching doom 
by dexterously snatching the bow from the savage and hurling it to the earth. He was named Jumping Bear from the almost miraculous dexterity of some of his feats. This circumstance and the Indian mentioned were, in my judgment, instruments in the hand of Providence in saving Fort Sully from the vengeance and slaughter of the Blackfeet, who had succeeded in gaining the confidence of some of the officers on the Missouri River. His activity in the attack of our train, and the energy he displayed in killing and pillaging on that occasion, notwithstanding his efforts to make me believe the contrary, forbade me to think there was any sympathy in his interference on my behalf. The Indian submitted to his intervention so far that he did not draw his bow again, and my suspense was relieved for the time by the gift of a horse from the chief to his brother-in-law, which calmed the fury of the wronged Indian. It happened that the animal thus given as a peace-offering was the pack-horse that pulled so uncomfortably against the leading rein, and thus, in the end, I gained, by the ordeal through which I had passed, in being relieved of a most unmanageable task. From the first I was deprived of every ameliorating comfort that might have rendered my existence bearable. No tent was spread for me, no rug or coverlet offered me to lie on. The hard earth, sparsely spread with grass, furnished me a couch, and apprehension and regret deprived me of the rest my toilsome life demanded. They offered me no food, and at first I did not dare to ask for it. This was partly owing to the absence of all natural appetite, an intense weakness and craving constantly for drink being the only signs of the prolonged fast that annoyed me. The utter hopelessness of my isolation wore on me, driving me almost to madness, and visions of husband and child haunted my brain. Sometimes they were full of hope and tauntingly happy. At others I saw them dying or dead, but always beyond my reach, and separated by the impassable barrier of my probably lifelong captivity. In my weakened condition, the horrors of the stake, to which I felt myself borne daily nearer as they progressed on their homeward route, appeared like a horrid phantom. It had been threatened me since my first effort to escape, and I was led to believe such a punishment was the inevitable consequence of my attempt. The terrible heat of the days continued, and the road they took was singularly barren of water. The Indians, after drinking plentifully before starting, carry little sticks in their mouths, which they chew constantly, thus creating saliva and preventing the parching sensation I endured from the want of this knowledge. The seventh night they entered a singular canyon, apparently well known to them, as they found horses there which evidently had been left on a former visit. I could not but wonder at the sagacity and patience of these Indian ponies, which were content to wait their master's coming, and browse about on the sparse herbage and meagre grass. The Indians had killed an antelope that day, and a piece of the raw flesh was allotted me for a meal. They had then travelled in a circuitous route for miles, to reach the mouth of this canyon, and entered it just after sundown. Its gloomy shade was a great relief after the heat of the sun, and it filled my sensitive mind with awe. The sun never seemed to penetrate its depths, and the damp air rose around me like the breath of a dungeon. Downward they went, as if descending into the bowels of the earth, 
and the sloping floor they trod was covered with red sand for perhaps the space of half a mile. Then they struck a rocky pavement, the perpendicular walls of which were of earth. But as they made another turning and entered a large space, they seemed to change to stone with projecting arches and overhanging cornices. The high walls rose above the base so as to nearly meet overhead, and, with their innumerable juttings and irregularities, had the appearance of carved columns supporting a mighty ruin. Occasionally a faint ray of the fading light struggled with the gloom, into which they plunged deeper and deeper, and then their horses' cautious feet would turn the bones of antelope or deer, drawn thither by the lurking wolf to feed the young in their lair. I was startled with dread at the sight, fearing that they might be human bones, with which mine would soon be mingled. The increasing darkness had made it necessary for the Indians to carry torches, which they did, lighting up the grotesque grandeur of earth and rock through which they passed by the weird glare of their waving brands. Arriving at the spot they selected as a camping ground, they made fires, whose fantastic gleams danced upon the rocky walls, and added a magic splendor to their wondrous tracery. The ghostly grandeur of these unfrequented shades cannot be described, but their effect is marvelous. They seem to shadow forth the outline of carving and sculpture, and in the uncertain firelight have all the effect of some old-time temple, whose art and glory will live forever, even when its classic stones are dust. Here I found water for my parched lips, which was more grateful to my weary senses than any natural phenomenon and sinking on a moss-grown rock near the trickling rill that sank away in the sand beyond, I found slumber in that strange, fantastic solitude. I was aroused by a whistling sound, and, gathering myself up, looked fearfully around me. Two flaming eyes seemed to pierce the darkness like a sword. I shuddered and held my breath, as a long, lithe serpent wound past me, trailing its shining length through the damp sand, and moving slowly out of sight among the dripping vines. After that I slept no more, and when I saw the struggling light of day pierce the rocky opening above, I gladly hailed the safety of the sunshine, even though it brought sorrow, distress, and toil. When we rose in the morning, they left the canyon by the path they entered, as it seemed to have no other outlet, and then pursued their way. End of chapter 7